every skill you can think of, you can apply to help others. I challenge you to think of a, of, of, of a trade or a career that, that couldn't be helpful somehow. Um, even, if, even if the only thing you can do well is washing dishes, then that's something that, that, that is needed. Michael Brzozowski is a former English teacher and now a social entrepreneur. In 2002, he moved to Hanoi and in 2004, set up an organization called Blue Dragon, which helps Vietnamese street kids and addresses one of the major scourges in the world, that of human trafficking. Uh, Michael still sounds like an Aussie, uh, but is very much uh, part of Vietnamese culture. He's somebody who is making a remarkable difference in the world. And it's a real delight to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Michael, thanks for joining us. Good on you, Andrew. Thank you. So how did you first uh, get it, it switched on to, uh, to Vietnam? What was your first exposure to uh, the country or to the people? It, it goes way back, actually, um, to when I was a high school student at Inverell High School in northern New South Wales. Um, one day, completely out of the blue, uh, six or seven young Vietnamese uh, students turned up at the school. Um, they, they had arrived in Australia via a refugee camp in Malaysia, somehow ended up in Inverell of all places where there were really no other Vietnamese people and turned up at the school, uh, hardly knowing a word of English. And, and somehow I uh, got to know them and, and offered to use my, my lunch times uh, and, and some free periods to teach them a bit of English. And their stories just amazed me. The idea that that they had encountered pirates, that that they'd lived in in camps, um, just incredible, blew me away, um, and and really inspired me to go on to become an ESL teacher. Uh, and and I ended up teaching, you know, some years later in southwestern Sydney, uh, and uh, had a lot of Vietnamese students there. So so really that that was early interactions shaped my my view of the world and and uh, you know and and created an interest in Vietnam that led me eventually to, to coming here. Now on your first visit in 1998 uh, you came to uh, to meet some uh, Vietnamese kids who wanted to use the same skills you'd been deploying on your classmates. Uh, tell us about how that that encounter began. Yeah well I'd, I'd it was my first trip out of Australia. I'd never been out of Australia before. And, uh, and you know, all of that earlier interaction with Vietnamese people made me think, I've, I've got to go there. You know, I want to see what this country is all about, these amazing people. And, uh, you know, I was backpacking around and, and you might remember the days of the Lonely Planet, Southeast Asia on a shoestring. Yeah. Um, that was my guidebook. And, and just ended up on this bus tour, you know, with 40, 50 people on this bus. Um, and and uh, the, the story is that it was the final day of our trip. I was feeling quite ill from some food poisoning. And, and my group was about to walk up this mountain. It's, it's right on, on the southern border between uh, Vietnam and Cambodia. There's this one mountain in an otherwise absolutely flat uh, flat as a pancake terrain. And I said, no, thanks. You know, I'm not climbing this mountain. Um, 
I'll just sit here under this tree. And, and at that point, these kids were coming up and, and they had these books in their hand and, and the books were just in such bad condition that it, it actually took me a few minutes to work out that this was an English language textbook. I couldn't even identify that. That's how poor the quality was. And, and these kids who just had nothing, uh, I mean, they were so poor. Uh, and, and one of them, uh, one of the boys' mothers, she had a little shop opposite where I was sitting. Um, I later found out, you know, she was totally illiterate. Um, she was selling, it was just a dirt floor under a tin roof, selling sweets and Coca-Cola and so on. And, and so I just sat there helping the kids with a bit of English pronunciation and, and, and they were so appreciative of this. It meant so much to them. Um, it, that was really evident. And, you know, the mother was coming over, plying me with, with drinks and, and sweets. Um, it was a really formative experience uh, because, you know, that's the greatest compliment that anyone could pay to a teacher, right, is to say, I would like you to teach me. It doesn't happen a whole lot uh, to, to, to teachers that, that kids are bombarding them with, with requests for, for uh, impromptu lessons. And, and so, you know, I felt really gratified by that. Uh, I, I'm looking back at, I think I felt that maybe it was one of the most meaningful experiences that I'd had in my life. Um, or, or perhaps if I say that I felt more than ever that I was contributing something worthwhile. Um, and, and I still know some of those kids today. Obviously, they're, they're adults now and they have families of, of their own. Um, and they've come a long way from, from when they were so, so poor. Um, but that experience meant something to them as well, that somebody stopped and, uh, and helped them with something that they needed help with. So then a couple of years later, you made the decision to move to Vietnam. It's a, it's a bit of a difference to go from helping some kids on a holiday to actually moving to the country. Uh, uh, what inspired you to make the shift? Yeah. Well, I, I didn't come to Vietnam with a plan to start an NGO. I can tell you it was the furthest thing from my mind. Uh, after that first visit, I was only in Vietnam for maybe a week or so. And, and I wanted to explore it more. I'd only been in the, in the Southern Delta. I wanted to explore, you know, Vietnam. There's so, there's so much here to see. Um, so I, I'd come back on some more trips. And, and on those trips, it kind of dawned on me, I'm so happy here. In, in Australia, I was living very far from my family. Uh, I was teaching in, in uh, southwestern Sydney in a terrific school. Uh, shout out to Westfield Sports High School in Fairfield. Um, and, and look, I had a great staff team around me. It was a very good school. Uh, but I had a yearning to do something more. Mm. My, my, my greatest frustration as a school teacher uh, in a school with lots of disadvantaged students was that I wanted to help them with so much, but my job was to teach them English. Um, and, you know, rightfully so, that's, you, you've got to have clearly defined uh, roles for, for teachers. But I, but I could say I'd love to be helping these kids and their families um, with the social issues that, that they face, with the, the challenges that they have of integrating into society and coping with the trauma. You know, I, I had... Uh, a lot of Cambodian students as well, whose whose families had been through 
extraordinary trauma, had seen people killed, had fled for their lives. And, and, I, and I could feel that I really wanted to do something for the whole person, for the whole family. Mm. And, and, and I couldn't quite do that as an English teacher. So, so I was feeling frustrated even even though like I had a good job and and everything was going well, um, but when I came to Vietnam, I felt at home. So I thought I'm going to go to Vietnam and see what happens. I didn't have any plan at all. I came. I had a backpack and a and a carry bag, um, and an idea that I might find a job teaching English here, uh, and that was it. What was your first encounter with uh, street kids in Vietnam? Well, After that was, yeah, that was really when I came to, to Hanoi. So I started out in Ho Chi Minh City, also called Saigon, and uh, I was loving life there. Uh, I, I, I was actually volunteering in a, in a university. I was getting paid a few hundred dollars a month, um, which was enough to get by. It was a kind of an easy job and I was, I was enjoying it. And, and then I got sent to Hanoi to to work in the university of economics here um that they really needed an english teacher more than they needed in saigon and street kids at that time it's very it's a very different situation now um nothing in vietnam stays the same everything is constantly developing and evolving at that time there were a lot of street kids here who had come in from the countryside from from neighboring provinces um, often it was a boy who had come in with his mum uh, and mum mum might be collecting scrap on the streets or selling fruit uh, and the boy would be shining shoes and, and they were saving up their money every month and sending that home. Now, I thought I was only going to be in Hanoi for a little while. I, I thought I was heading back to Saigon within six months. So uh, I thought, oh, look, you know, I don't really know anyone in Hanoi. All, all of my friendship base, all of my network was in Saigon. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll just get to know these, these people. And I'd be sitting, having coffee by the side of the road, as you, as you do here in, in Vietnam, on very small plastic stools. Kids would come by offering to shine my shoes. And I didn't really feel comfortable letting them do that. So I'd say, sit down um, and I'll, I'll pay for your meal and a fruit shake and, and I'll teach you some English. Um, and, and once, once the kids knew that there was someone who would do that, they would, you know, they would start coming back and bringing their friends and, uh, and, and I, I would go into university the next day, uh, and I was teaching, it was a master's degree, uh, in development economics. And my job was to teach, uh, English for, for these students writing their theses. And, and I would tell them stories about, I met these kids or I met this family. And, and some of the students actually came to me at the end of one lesson, basically saying, look, you know, you're, you're a foreigner and you're helping Vietnamese people. We're Vietnamese and we're not helping anyone. So we want to help you. That was basically how the conversation went. Uh, and, and, you know, those, those students ended up working with me in founding Blue Dragon. Um, but it was just that uh, here are these kids and they're good people. Um, you know, imagine street kids earning money and sending it home. Surely we can do something for them. Uh, and, and so those really simple initiatives and, and, and encounters with street kids, that's what led 
to the start of Blue Dragon. And initially, you managed to uh, to find a home for uh, for a hand for a handful of kids uh, through a, a generous donation of, of just five thousand uh, dollars. Tell us that story. Yeah, th things are a little bit more expensive now, but we uh, basically what happened there was we'd been teaching English to the kids that you know that was my specialty. Um, we we would we started a football club. We, we had yoga lessons for, for street kids and all of this. And it was all really good. Um, the kids were, were, were loving it. We were happy to volunteer our time doing this. But it became really clear that the kids needed more than that. Mm. Um, you know, we were teaching them English and then they were going back out onto the street shining shoes. Well, that's not okay. So we gathered the kids together one, one Sunday afternoon and, and there might have been 12, 15 kids there. And, and we just asked a series of questions, starting with, you know, who'd, who'd like to change your life? And, and finally, like we got it down to, well, if you had an opportunity to stop working on the street and to live in a home uh, and to um, go back to school or, or get a job if you're old enough, who would do it? And six kids ended up raising their hand saying, I'd like to do that. Um, and, and so we set out then to start our, our first home. Um, it had those six boys and we employed one of their mothers to, to live there. That was the unlucky boy uh, having his mum <laughs> as, as the carer. Um, but they, you know, they all went back to school. And, and you mentioned about the cost, Andrew. There's a, there's a funny story there. Uh, it's quite a nice story that we, we calculated what it was going to cost for a whole year. And we came up with the vast sum, this is 20 years ago, the vast sum of $5,200. Well, we didn't have that money, you know, and, and we weren't a registered organization or anything at that point. Um, but we'd made this promise to the kids, you know, we'd, we'd gotten their hopes up. So we said, okay, we're just going to have to do this and we'll work out later where the money will come from. And I swear within two weeks, I had a, I had a call from uh, a woman who was actually the wife of the German ambassador. And she said to me, I don't even know how she got my phone number actually. She said, look, I, I've heard about you, Michael. I heard that you're helping street kids. I wonder if you need any money. Um, she said, <laughs> we raised some money for another project that somebody was going to run, but it can't run. It's, it's had some problems, it can't run. And we have $5,200, <laughs> could, could you use that money? I mean, you couldn't make that up. Uh, such good, good fortune. So it was a good sign, and and the house started, and uh, and it was a terrific success. You're perhaps best known for the the work that you've done on uh, rescuing those who've been trafficked. Uh, tell us about how you moved from helping those who are homeless in the street to rescuing those who were being held against their will. Look, all of the story of Blue Dragon is is of not actually setting out to do to do something, but then doing it really well. Um, didn't set out to start an NGO, that's for sure. But before long, we had to start one uh, because we were helping these kids, and we absolutely did not set out to become an anti-trafficking organisation. Um, but then one day, I was I was actually in Ho Chi Minh City, so I'd gone back down for a few days. I was sitting outside this 
restaurant and and there was a little boy um turns out he was 13 years old he was walking up and down this alleyway selling flowers he had a like a bunch of roses in his arm and and i just watched and as he every time he sold a rose he would then sort of hurry down the street and hand the money to two women who were sitting there now this was 2005 so blue dragon was barely barely beginning you know we were still working out who we were and what we were doing but like clearly something was wrong here with this with this boy so i i got chatting to him as best i could in my in my broken vietnamese and it was really clear that he was there against his will and he wanted nothing more than to go home so i kind of managed to work out look how much money would it take for me to pay the traffickers because it was obviously that's who these women were how much would i have to pay the traffickers for them to let you go and he was really excited oh great i'm going to go home and he went and and chatted to the women and they gave him a number i think i think it was $50 um gave him this $50 and and then i was sort of heading to the airport to um to to go back to hanoi so you know i gave him my phone number and and he was able to to call well they didn't let him go i lost my 50 bucks andrew um and and i can tell you we've never done that again we have never ever paid a trafficker again um learned my lesson well back in hanoi um there was a young law student um named van who who is now our chief lawyer and one of the most amazing people uh in this world he should win a nobel peace prize he won't but he should um he got on the phone to the traffickers and you know he was a law student at this time a third year law student so what could he do to get to get these women to release the boy uh well he threatened them <laughs> basically he said to them look you know that foreign guy you took his money well he's such a big important person you know have you ever heard of the united nations and uh, i mean it couldn't be further from from the truth but it worked um you know within hours this boy was on a train on his way home um so at that point we we went so he was from a village in central vietnam and we wanted to work out what happened how did he end up on the street like that mm. and and does he need any more help we went to visit um you know he was living he was living in a tin shack literally on the beach in a typhoon zone their their house would blow over um, at least twice a year and they would just put it back together again no one in the family mum and dad and the three kids no one had ever been to school no one was literate um just the most shocking poverty and and what we learned was it wasn't only this one boy who who had been taken from that village down to ho chi minh city there were dozens of kids and a lot of them were also in factories and and all of the parents thought that their kids were off getting an education that was what the traffickers promised mm. so you know once we had seen that we couldn't turn away from it and before long we were on our way to ho chi minh city to look for for kids who'd been trafficked and and to to get them home um and that was our first foray into into human trafficking uh, i mean a, a couple of years after that one of one of the girls from our street kid program ended up 
um, trafficked into China and sold to a brothel. And, and then that was our first cross-border operation to find someone and bring them home. And, and we were able to do that basically because of what we had learned of rescuing kids within Vietnam. Um, and, and now we're rescuing people from several different countries around Vietnam and sometimes within Vietnam. Um, but I do want to emphasize, you know, rescue, when I talk about rescue, I'm not talking about big tough guys kicking down doors and grabbing victims and uh, beating up the bad guys. It's not a, it's not a Batman movie we're talking about here. It's non-confrontational. We find people and help them escape. Um, and we work with the authorities as much as we can. So um, that's a long way from teaching a little bit of English to some street kids. Yes. Uh, that's the journey. What is it that makes a good rescuer when you're hiring someone who will, will work in this field? What are the qualities and skills you're, you're looking for? Bearing in mind that, of course, through this conversation, there's a range of things that you don't want to reveal about how you, you do your rescues. Yeah. I look right before we got on this call, Andrew, I, I had a, a, some messages from our, from our team about a, a woman we've just rescued. Um, a 31-year-old woman who who we rescued from uh, from Myanmar, and and I've got these photos and and film of of the rescue, and it it looks frightening. Um, not that they're being chased or anything like that, but they're going you know undercover through night across rivers in little boats and and so on. To do this work, you need you need to be brave, um, because because you are putting yourself potentially in, in harm's way, but you need to be smart in the sense that you're not looking for danger. You know, you've got to be able to put your ego completely aside. The goal in every rescue is to be able to do another rescue tomorrow. Um, and so that means not standing out, not, not nobody even realizing that you're there. Our best rescues are those where Half an hour later, the trafficker is standing there saying, hang on, where's that, where's that person I had here? You know, when they don't even know that, that an operation has taken place. Um, so, so we really need people who are humble, brave, um, and, and smart. And the traffickers themselves, uh, you must have had a lot to do with, with traffickers. What, what kind of a person traffics another human being, particularly into, into sex slavery? I, I don't have a good answer for you um, because I don't understand it. Um, the, the people who get caught, by the way, um, and, and of course, they're the people that we then have data on that we can study and, and, and analyze. The, the people who get caught, if you compare them to their victims, the profile is basically identical. So in Vietnam, the, the, the victim and the, the trafficker, uh, in most cases, um, they're from an ethnic minority group, which are the most uh, economically marginalized um, people and, and normally living in very remote areas. Uh, they have a, a low level of education. Um, by far, most have not uh, gone further than grade nine. Many are illiterate. And this is both the victim and the trafficker who we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the other thing that doesn't get captured so much in the data, but that we see, is that they're people who actually, 
they're, they're living in disadvantage and they want to turn their life around. Now, for the victim, that desire for something better is actually what causes them to get trafficked. So the trafficker builds up a relationship with them um, based on trust. Might be an employer, uh, it might, they might be pretending to be a, a boyfriend or a lover, um, and, and they're preying on that person's desire to escape poverty or to change their life somehow. But the trafficker might also be someone trying to change their life. You know, we, we've come across testimonies from, from some of these traffickers, and they're both male and female. Um, and, and, you know, they'll say things like, the first time I did it, I didn't really understand that I was, you know, selling someone. Um, and I worked it out later, I understood. Um, but I did it again, because I just thought, you know, if I just do this one time, you know, just one more time, I'll just make some money, and then I'll never do it again. So I guess, you know, they find a way to rationalize it to themselves. But at the end of the day, they're looking for opportunity. Now, now higher up the chain, the, the more organized traffickers, um, they rarely get caught. So there's not a lot that we know about them. But from our interactions, from what we see, they, they are people who manage to cut off their empathy. You know, they, they have switched off that, that switch um, that would let them care about the fate of, of another person. And that's what I have difficulty understanding because I, I don't know how you can do that. On your blog, lifeisalongstory.com, you tell some of these harrowing tales. Um, you talk about people who pretend to be in love with the victim and then lead them to a brothel and then suddenly disappear. Uh, you tell the story of Mrs. Thu, who was uh, uh, trafficked when she had a young son back in Vietnam and spent 28 years uh, living away from her own child. Um, you know, some of the, the depths of barbarism in this uh, are, are just it, it's difficult to fathom. Yeah, I, and I struggle with that. Um, I, look, I guess my own story, you can see, I, I see a problem and think, well, how can I help? And to me, that's just what I think is normal. I don't think I'm not doing anything exceptional there. I think most people are actually the same. Um, and to different levels, you know, everyone who donates, for example, is is saying, I want to help. Mm. Um, and, and, and in fact, people who donate are doing something more selfless than what I'm doing, because I get to see the result. I, I get to be here and, and talk to the, these people and, and um, feel that warm inner glow. People who donate are sending money from a distance. So by far, most people in the world are like you and me. We, we see an issue, we want to help in some way. So conceptually, I don't get the idea that you couldn't care. Um, maybe that's my own mental stumbling block, but I don't get it. I, I've always found it difficult to come at the idea of uh, evil. Uh, you know, I've sort of been, been, been of that view that uh, basically all we are is our genes and our environment. And uh, uh, if I had the genes in the environment of someone else, then I'd behave the way they do. But your stories 
test that perhaps more than uh, than than anything else I've uh, I've come across. Um, do you do you believe in evil? I I use that word sparingly. Right. Um, you you might you might find one or two times on my blog where I've where I've said that um, because I also I like to think that we'll rise to an occasion and and that people are capable of of better. Um, you know, maybe it's more that a, it's a sequence of things going wrong in people's lives that that lead them to finally being at a point where they're prepared to do that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to to look at this as as a moral issue, as a psychological issue, as a criminal matter. Um, I do I can say that one of the things we're trying in Blue Dragon is seeing we want to prevent human trafficking. And we have some pretty good ideas about how to do that um, from the victim perspective, you know, preventing people from being in a situation where they could be trafficked. What we're also asking ourselves is, what would it take to stop someone becoming a trafficker? Mm. Now, that's really hard because um, you, can't, you can't do something and then two years later point to all of the people you helped and say, see, look, none of them are traffickers, therefore what we did worked. You you can't you can't tell what you've prevented from happening. Yes. But but if the traffickers are people who are looking for opportunity, who have a low level of education, well well they're things that you can address. So if we can if we can identify the profile of a of a trafficker, then we can identify people who may potentially become traffickers one day and run interventions to give them other choices. And I would like to believe that that's enough to stop someone from becoming a trafficker, that you wouldn't go down that path if you had better options. How do you look after yourself and your staff when you're doing such harrowing work? Yeah, really important question. And, and I, I haven't always done it well. I, you know, I've certainly experienced burnout, um, uh, and, and traumatic responses to, to the to the things around me, um, as have my staff. It's it's always an issue, but for me personally, uh, a lot of it is about the small things. Um, spending time in in the garden, um, or or being with my dog. You know, quiet time in nature, um, where where you know dogs don't traffic each other. They're they're such simple beings. Uh, <laughs> So, so some of that, just building that into a daily routine, uh, meditating, um, just finding finding ways to disconnect from the the terrible things um, for a few minutes. On a more professional level, we we do make sure that that I and and all of the staff at Blue Dragon have access to to counselling and clinical supervision. Um, it it is a it is difficult in a nonprofit when when someone sends ten dollars to help the kids, they don't expect that I'm going to use that money to go and pay a you know a psychologist to talk to for, for myself. Um, so so it's something where we we have to do it, but we have to find cost effective ways to do it and reasonable mm. ways to do it. Um, and look, there are a few pr professions I think. Politicians uh, would be one, uh, you know, a few, a few different sectors where um, it, it can almost sound selfish to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take next week off because I need to look after myself. Um, 
but but it's something that we have to challenge that that people who are in high stress professions or or, or dealing with uh, lots of trauma that that it's essential that we take care of ourselves we can't do a good job if we don't um so you know having those things in place those little daily uh practices of being in nature meditation and so on they're helpful having the psych psychological counseling as backup um and and then the the third part to it i think is having a good workplace culture uh where people are supportive where it's okay that sometimes you you lose your your mind and 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 need to vent and no one holds it against you uh where where people are looking out for each other uh and saying hey look maybe you're not so well today come and have a coffee um that's a bit intangible that developing the right culture to support people through through this kind of work but absolutely essential you founded blue dragon 19 years ago and, and i guess face some of the challenges that founder ceos typically uh, confront uh, i'm curious as to the uh, your first attempt to let go of the leadership and uh, how that didn't work out the way you wanted and how your what you've done in recent years stepping back to be more of a strategic advisor has been successful tell us a bit about those experiences and and how that might uh, shape how other founder ceos operate it's it's a subject that i'm really passionate about um so going back to about 20, 2014, 2015, uh, I was I was getting really burnt out. Uh, I, I I knew that I couldn't do the best job of of leading on the daily leadership of the organisation, and and so I thought, right, I've got to step out. And the intention was for me to to take on a role as as a founder, um, which can be defined in many ways, uh, and have somebody else run the organisation. Um, now, the problem was that um, we hadn't really defined clearly what Blue Dragon was. I mean, we knew what we did, but mm. what about our what about our culture? What about our work practices, our philosophy? And and I see this happen in a lot of organizations, and it happened in Blue Dragon, that that we had a leader who had completely different ideas to everyone else and started taking the organization off in another direction. And there were no guardrails to say this that- This is your 2015, yeah. That's right, that's right. There were, there were no guardrails in the organization to say that that couldn't be done. It was, um, it was fine to do that. And I see this in a lot of organizations where maybe they change CEOs every few years and each time there's a new CEO, the organization becomes something different. Mm. Well, that, that happened to Blue Dragon. And, Within a year, you know, our senior staff who'd been with us from the beginning was, was starting to get quite restless. I was very unhappy. It, it wasn't working. Everyone was unhappy. Um, and look, it's easy for me to say that the, the, the new CEO, the successor, um, you know, was doing things differently to what she should have done. But there's a shared responsibility there for, for what happened um, because the expectations had never been properly established. And, and so um, when she left, we spent the next few years as a whole organization, really reflecting on who are we? What do we believe? What kind of culture do we want to have? And, and those sort of intangibles, a lot of organizations don't think about that. Um, 
And we have found it absolutely invaluable. We've documented it in what we call our culture guide. And mm. we, don't, we don't always live up to it. Um, we, we don't do it perfectly, that's for sure. But we've, we've got systems in place that, uh, that give us checks and balances, whoever the CEO is. Uh, and, and in fact, we've, we, we now have a co-CEO model. Uh, so we have an Australian woman, Sky McConaughey, um, from a social work background, and, and a Vietnamese man, uh, Do Zui V, who, who actually was one of those first three kids. He lived in that, in that first house 20 years ago. What a great um, Yeah, and, and I, look, it's not something that I saw coming. 20 years ago, I would never have, have guessed. <laughs> uh, but wow, you know, he, he was ready for this job when it came up. Um, and, and even having a co-CEO model, a lot of people will say to me, well, that never works. Um, it's working. Uh, but it takes care. It, it takes deliberate attention, maintaining a good culture, maintaining good relationships within an organization. It's all about intentionality. And one thing that I've learned is you can't, you can't have a good organization delivering good care to people if the staff are not united and all working in the same direction. Um, you know, if there's gossip, if there's internal politics. Mm. And, you know, we've had it in Blue Dragon. Um, and I hate it. I, I can't imagine anything worse than going to work each day in a place where there's backbiting and people don't like each other and there's secret meetings to talk about that other person. So we've gotten rid of it. We just, we create a supportive culture now uh, and, uh, and draw a line under that behavior. Um, and the result is that we care for the kids far better than we ever did before. Um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't provide good care to people um, if, if your staff team is a mess. And so thinking about your leadership philosophy, are you trying to do something that's a little bit less top-down than in the typical non-profit organisation? Yeah, very much so. Um, we, we have a, and this is all a part of our, our philosophy. We want each person in Blue Dragon to, to take responsibility for our success. So one of our, one of our rules, I guess you could call it, is that you can never say, that's not my job. There's nothing in the organization that you're not responsible for. Now that doesn't mean you've got to be an expert for everything. So if one of our accountants sees a child in the center sitting in the corner crying, it, it doesn't mean the accountant has to go and solve that problem, but it would mean the accountant has to call the right person to help. But the accountant can't just walk past and say, oh, I'm an accountant, you know, I don't deal with kids. Yes. So it's a, it's a, a, a shared responsibility. And, you know, different people in the organization respond differently to that. Some love it, some embrace it. Others are a bit, oh, I'd, I'd actually prefer just to be top down and have someone tell me what to do. Uh, you know, it takes all kinds, um, but we're constantly encouraging that participation from, from our staff. Uh, we have a uh, our decision-making mechanism, for example, is called the advice process, um, which is a, a process where before you make a decision that will affect somebody else, 
you have to consult the people who it will affect. And it's not a vote. It's not, it's not trying to reach consensus. It's about listening. Uh, and maybe this is ringing some bells for you at the moment, Andrew, to do with the voice. I've often thought that the yeah. idea of the voice is kind of an advice process. Um, the listeners aren't, aren't obliged to, to, to follow the advice that they're given, but they're obliged to take it into account. Um, and, and so in that way, there's a bit of a democratization of how we work. Uh, it's always a work in process. It's progress. It's never perfect, that's for sure. Um, but again, it gets us better outcomes with the kids. Um, you know, just, just as an example, um, we work up in the, in the mountains of northern Vietnam in, in areas where trafficking is a real problem. And, and we have a few great pr projects there that are having a terrific impact. Uh, one of them, for example, is what we call our anti-trafficking boards. They're committees of local people, often mums, maybe a school teacher, maybe the local police officer, and, and they've, they form a committee and they've got certain responsibilities. Now, it's brilliant. And, and it works in, in this context, in the Vietnamese context, it works so well. Now that idea, um, I can't even tell you who came up with that idea. It was a few of our frontline staff kind of saw something like this and thought we should try that, tried it, it worked. And now it's become like a major part of what Blue Dragon does. So instead of that traditional model of the guys at the top come up with all, all the brilliant ideas, and, and all the people down below implemented. We've got people on the front lines saying, I actually think this might work. Let's try it and, and, and succeeding. So you've, it becomes a hive mind. Everyone's part of the decision-making and you don't rely on one or two people to be really smart and come up with all the great ideas. Michael, you seem to revel in moral complexity, and uh, I want to ask you a couple of uh, the ethical questions around the work that Blue Dragon does. Uh, one is uh, the story of Tan, who was trafficked to a sweatshop at age 12. Tell us about Tan and, and what, uh, what his story reveals. Well, I remember, I, I was actually there at the time that, that we got Tan out of the sweatshop. Um, lovely kid, he, and he was tiny, you know, 12 years old. He looked like he could have been eight. We took him home to his family up in uh, central central Vietnam and just heartbreaking poverty. They lived in a, a bamboo shack, but even the floor was bamboo. It was perched up above um, a drainage creek um, oh, and just heart, heartbreaking poverty. So look, we built them a house. Uh, we got all the kids, including Tan, back into school. We helped up to start a little um, aquaculture business, uh, raising fish in the in the nearby lagoon. And and look, everything was going great. The family, for the first time, everything was stable. They'd never they'd never had it so good. And and Tan going to school, he he had an examination one day. Uh, it didn't. He didn't think he did well, so he. He hatched a plot to break into the classroom at night and burn his exam paper so that it wouldn't get graded and he wouldn't get in trouble from mum. And he ended up burning the whole school down. He didn't mean to, but he did. And, and you know, this is in a really poor village where the school is kind of like the most valuable thing around. Um, 
and and for his whole family, it meant just being absolutely ostracized. He went to prison for a very long time. Um, absolutely devastating. And you know, this was a kid who we rescued. And we NGOs, we like to talk about our success stories. Andrew, you might notice, we like to to boast about you know when we help someone, they're fine for the rest of their life. We've turned people's lives around. But actually, Tan, you know, he's not the only kid who has gone on after receiving help to 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 get into trouble. Uh, we've had some of our young kids even commit violent crimes. But but Tan's story doesn't end there. When he got released from from prison, he really took it on himself to 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 change things again, and he ended up uh, moving to a, a, a pagoda, a temple, um, and living there. And and he has just recently, just in the past year, he's completed grade twelve. Now he, I, I guess he's been studying part time, and he's done it entirely on his own. I can't even tell you that Blue Dragon helped him with that. If I'd known he was doing it, we would have offered to help. He did it entirely on his own. And along the way, while he's living in this pagoda as a monk, you know, he's got the shaved head and he wears the brown uh, gown of, of, um, of that order. Every year at Lunar New Year, he, he turns up at Blue Dragon with an envelope of money that he puts in my hand and says, this is for the kids. So, you know, like I say, in, and I, I, I say this on my blog a bit, but it's never the end of the story. Someone can do something absolutely atrocious today, but they, they may still turn out to be a wonderful person. And, and Tan really embodies that. For someone who's looking to follow in your footsteps and to make the sort of mark on the world that you've made, what advice would you have in terms of what to study, what to read, how to reach out in your local community? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would say straight off. And the, the decision about what to study is a really easy one. There's one thing you should study, whatever you love. I got my, my entry into this work was as an English teacher, um, which is a bit unlikely. Um, if I'd been a doctor, I could have done it. If I'd been a lawyer, uh, if I'd been a carpenter, like the, every, every skill you can think of, you can apply to help others. I challenge you to think of a, of, of, of a trade or a career that, that couldn't be helpful somehow. Um, even, if, even if the only thing you can do well is washing dishes, then that's something that, that, that is needed. And, and the other thing is start where you are. You know, I didn't come to Vietnam to, uh, to start an NGO. Um, and, and people will say to me sometimes, well, why didn't you do this in, in Australia? Um, well, I, I could have done it in Australia if, if the sort of the right set of circumstances had, had been there. It really was about the circumstances. Um, if, if this is something that you want to do, find an opportunity near you to help someone. And, and it doesn't have to be starting an, an NGO. If, if that's what you want to do, go for it. Go and start a, a charity. Um, and Australia in particular has great uh, support there um, for, for people starting charity. It's very clear, uh, it's very doable. But you don't have to do that. You know, you, you, it might just be cooking a meal for the, for the elderly person next door who lives on their own uh, or, or volunteering once a month at your local food bank. Um, just start somewhere. 
and and see where it takes you. Uh, it it might not become something big, and it doesn't have to. You know, the the small things that people do are just as valuable as the big things. I really, really believe that. There's a uh, philosophy known as earning to give, uh, rising out of the effective altruism movement. Uh, the principle behind it is that uh, if you've got skills in a high-paying profession, such as banking or law or accountancy, then rather than putting those skills to one side and going to work as a social worker, you might choose instead to donate a significant fraction of your salary, potentially employing two or three social workers. Uh, but critics of it say, well, that's all fine in the kind of uh, utilitarian frame, but really you end up uh, disconnected from the problems that you care about. And so the critics say of earning to give that it's, it's sort of disembodying altruism and really we should be encouraging people to, to roll up their sleeves on problems they care about. What's your view on earning to give? Yeah, look, I, I could go either way on that. Um, back when Blue Dragon started, uh, you know, I'd, I'd quit my job. Uh, I had no income. And, and I had one friend, um, Hugh Adams, uh, an, an American guy living here in Vietnam. And when he, when he found out that I had no income, he, he said to me, look, you know, you can't do that. And, and he started giving me $100 a month just so that I had something. And he said to me, I, I can earn money. I'm a businessman, but I can't do what you do. So I'm going to give you some money so that you can do the thing that you're good at. Um, now, that really helped me. It meant that for a year or so, I was fine without a, a proper income. Um, but I don't think you have to be disconnected when you're, when you're doing it like that. You, you mentioned as an example about uh, high-paid lawyers. Well, Blue Dragon also gets support from, from some law firms uh, and, and from some lawyers. We have, uh, you know, at different times, we have lawyers on our board uh, in, in Australia. Um, so, so I don't think it has to be either or. Uh, and, and I also think we should be working in our areas of passion and skill. And, you know, if you're, if you're really good at earning money, then okay, do that and, and use it for good. Uh, I do agree with with that idea, though, of be connected to the to the cause as well. And it's not that hard, you know. Hugh was slinging me a hundred dollars a month, and and I'd go and have lunch with him every now and then, and and we'd talk about what was happening. Um, so you know, he was connected. So it's it's possible. Michael, uh, let me finish off with a couple of uh, questions I ask all of my podcast guests. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Don't take life too seriously. Uh, it, it all works out in the end. Did you take life seriously as a teen? Yeah, I was really stressed as a, as a teen. I was, I was, uh, I couldn't, I, I, I lived in poverty. Um, as a teenager, we, we lived in caravans on a, on a block of land uh, up in north, northwest New South Wales. And I couldn't see a way out. I couldn't see a future. Uh, and that, that really kind of stressed me. Um, and, and I just wish I could go back now and say, don't worry about it. Don't, don't sweat at all. I used, to, I used to be so concerned that every decision I made about my schooling and so on was, was life or death. It wasn't. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? 
I, look, I don't know that I can pinpoint one thing, but what I would say is that as I get older, I see a lot more shades of grey in everything. That, you know, when, when I was younger, I would see issues in a lot more black and white, and sometimes I'd be quite unforgiving if someone was on the wrong side of that fence. And, and now I'm, I'm a lot more prepared to see the shades of grey in between. When are you most happy? Ah, that's an easy one. When, when I see someone thriving, who, like me as a kid, perhaps, never expected to thrive. Now, I mentioned earlier that, that one of our CEOs used to be a street kid. Nothing gives me greater pleasure than seeing someone like that. And they don't have to be in a, you know, in a CEO role. We have lots of young people also who've started their own family, started their own business, or, or, or you know, are in a good job. I just love that when when people no longer need to be helped um, because they can stand on their own. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Time in nature, by far, that's the most important thing. Connecting with the real world around me. What's your favourite bit of nature in Hanoi? There's not a lot in Hanoi, uh, but I I live in an apartment that has a little garden attached. Um, and and sitting out there in the evenings as the evening wind starts to, to blow through, that's my five minutes of peace. I remember when we visited the uh, lake in the middle of the city seemed to get a, a good walk out, a workout from walkers as well. It seemed to be a little oasis in the middle of the uh, a very busy city. Absolutely. But you see, for me, Andrew, that's difficult. If I go out, I may see a street kid or someone who needs help. So, so yeah. for me to relax, I actually need to withdraw. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, that plays into my natural introversion. Uh, but, but for me, really just being in a quiet space on my own, you know, with my dog sitting there with me, to me, that's bliss and, and that's healing. And finally, Michael, what person or what experience has most, most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I, I think back to when I was in um, in high school at uh, at Bandara Central School, and and I had an English teacher, Shirley McComb. You know, at that time, that was when we were living in these caravans, uh, and you know, we were thirty kilometers away from from town. Life was really harsh, and and I remember Mrs. McComb's um, unrelenting happiness and joy at the world, and her belief in me and, and those of us in our, in our class. It was a tiny little school. There were 13 of us in, in our grade, um, you know, all, all country kids. And she just saw the world in us. And, and she was the most positive person I had met uh, at, up until, you know, later in life. And, and, and I learned so much from her joy, from her belief in others. Um, in, in suspending judgment. Um, I, I think she's been one of the greatest influences on my life. Michael Grozowski, founder of uh, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Nice talking to you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please leave us a rating or tell a friend about the show. 
we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.